Have you ever found yourself stuck? Perhaps in a lift, on the side of a road, in a relationship, or in some part of life. In life, we can sometimes find ourselves stuck in a rut. I've heard it said that the only difference between a rut and a grave is depth. We can find ourselves stuck, struggling for a while while we try and make a shift. But for some, we come to a point where we give up struggling and develop an acceptance of what can be, at times, unhealthy surrounds, justifying our situation with a myriad of excuses. Even when we reach the point of giving up, it doesn't mean that God has given up on us. Let me pray. Jesus, as we spend some time in your word today, I ask that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, Holy Spirit, as you brood over us, as you move amongst us, as you move within us, would you quicken in us a desire to, to grow more, to hunger more for you? And as a result, would you reveal your truths that you have for us today? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, then I invite you to turn to John chapter 5 as we continue our snapshots in the life of Jesus. Sir Jack Brabham, triple Formula One driver champion, is quoted, one should not be braver than one's ability. Wise advice, which I wish I had heard some 30 years ago. At the church where Mary and I settled into as newlyweds, um, I developed the reputation or received the nickname Ditch It Dave. Ditch It Dave. This was due to nothing to do with me but my car's inexplicable magnetic pull towards the forestry track gutters on the side of the forestry track where I would regularly end up bogged after church on a Sunday um, when the youth, young adults would go out for a bit of a drive in the forestry. After the laughter and paying out on me uh, had subsided, the group would help me get my car out that was stuck back on the track, even if that only lasted until the next corner, which called for further foolish forestry antics. Now, it's one thing to get stuck when there are others to help you, it's another thing to get stuck when you feel all alone. On another occasion, I was actually driving responsibly for a change and I was driving up the centre of Bribey Island in Queensland um, looking for a picnic area that was used by water skiers where I was catching up with some friends for a water ski. Unfortunately, as I drove along the forestry track, the surface crust gave way under the weight of the Subaru and the car began to get stuck in the boggy ground underneath. To make matters worse, the hot exhaust of the car below the engine soon set fire to the grass that sat on the top of the crust. I had visions of being discovered by the rural fire brigade sitting beside a burnt-out wreck of a car waiting to be rescued. In John chapter 5, we read of an occasion of someone that found themselves stuck. You're welcome to follow as I retell the story. 
After spending some time in Galilee, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holidays. Now, we don't know exactly which holy day it was, so there's no real point in speculating. Inside the city, to the north of the temple, was the Sheep Gate, and near it, the Pool of Bethesda, also known as the House of Mercy. Around this pool were five covered porches or colonnades, with one dividing the um, pool into two. Crowds of sick people, the blind, the lame or paralysed, flocked to the pool, lying under the shades of the porches, waiting, watching and listening for the first signs of movement in the water. You see, over the years, and some 200 years after this event, the pools had developed a reputation for their healing qualities. Stories were told of supernatural visitations. An angel of the Lord was rumoured to come from time to time and to stir the waters. It was believed that the first person to get into the freshly stirred waters would be healed of whatever disease they had. Today, we choose to explain the movement by some possibilities of the, the natural springs bubbling up and disturbing the water. But back in Jesus' day, people desperate for a cure of their circumstances willingly waited days, weeks, months and even years to be the first in the pool and in doing so with the hope of being healed. Others, looking to fulfil their responsibility by caring for the poor and sick, could conveniently come past the pool on their way to the temple and give alms to those that were waiting at the water's edge. In one gesture, they could appease their conscience, help the poor, and hopefully would find favour with Yahweh God to whom they were about to pray. Like many other religious pilgrims before him, Jesus also makes his way to the pool on his way to the temple. As he walked, his attention is drawn to a man lying there. In verse 6, it tells us that Jesus saw the man. More than just a passing glance, Elroy of Genesis 16, the God who sees, looks intently at the man lying there. Discovering that he had been sick for 38 years, Jesus takes the initiative, goes to the man and asks, would you like to get well? Over time, this man had seen others benefit from the stirring of the waters. People who once spent their days with him waiting at the pool for their healing now pass by on their way to the temple. After 38 years, the man's condition had come to define him. The sickness that had robbed him of his ability to walk had also stolen hope. Stuck. The man was fixated on water, on the water, and what he believed to be the only source, the only way that he could be cured. Reason had now become excuses, justifying his circumstances. Jesus speaks searching for desire. Would you like to get well? But over time, desire and hope had been eroded away. And while he still came each day, competition, the inability or the loss of support uh, was greater than the possibility of a cure. 
I can't, sir, for I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get there, someone else always gets in ahead of me. Commanding the man's attention, but also calling for action. Jesus responds, stand up, pick up your sleeping mat, your bedding, and walk, and keep walking. The man, more full of excuses than faith, was instantly healed. He rolled up his mat and began walking. But for the newly healed, there was a hitch. You see, this healing took place on the Sabbath, a sacred day that had been violated in the past by God's people. The Old Testament prophets had declared um, that um, God's judgment would be on the nation for breaking the Sabbath and working on it. It was one of the reasons that the nation had been oppressed by other nations and neighbouring countries around them. When Israel finally gained some form of self-governance, the Pharisees, the dominant political group of the day, actively sought um, the people's compliance to a raft of religious rules. There were 39 classes of forbidden work on the Sabbath. And while some were understandable, the Sabbath came, uh, contained others that were a little bit bewildering to someone looking from the outside in. You see, a man could ride a donkey on the Sabbath, but to use a swatch, a, a, a crop, um, to hurry it along was forbidden. Relating to the situations before us, to carry your bedding was to break the Sabbath, but you could carry a man lying on his bedding, that was acceptable. You could also medically assist or heal someone who could die, that was acceptable, but to medically assist or heal someone who had a non-terminal condition like the layman was to break the Sabbath. Come back tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath. Both Jesus and the healed faced the wrath of the Jewish leaders in verse 10. The leaders said to the man who was permanently healed, you can't work on the Sabbath, it's illegal to carry that sleeping mat. While there was a change in the man's physical condition, he was still stuck in excuses and blame to justify his actions. The man who healed me said to me, pick up your sleeping mat and walk. It's not my fault, he made me do it. Who said such a thing as that? Not only had Jesus directed someone to break the Sabbath by carrying their bedding, but Jesus also disregarded the Sabbath by healing someone who could have waited till tomorrow. The man didn't know who Jesus was, and Jesus had intentionally slipped into the crowd to avoid the leaders. As the healed man made his way through the temple area, Jesus once again initiated contact with him. Now you are well. Now that you are permanently healed and made whole again, take responsibility for your actions. Stop sitting or something even worse may happen to you. Fearing the Pharisees more than fearing the consequences of sin, 
The man out of self-interest used the same legs healed by and restored by Jesus to find the Jewish leaders and identify them that Jesus was his healer. For us today, rather than rushing to judge the man Jesus healed, we can learn from John's account of Jesus healing this once lame man. For me, there are, there are probably three things that stand out for me in this account. The first thing I observe is that stuck people can often behave in a similar way. Feeling stuck is tiring and over time steals energy away and sucks hope from us. The initial realisation that we're stuck can have us look for ways out. But for some, we can become fixated on one solution rather than being open to other opportunities that are before us. Just like the lame man, consumed by the belief that his only source of healing lay within the waters of the pool, he was unable to see the possibility of another healer. When well-meaning people offer assistance, we can respond out of anger and frustration with excuses of why we are still stuck. If any of that sounds familiar, then can I encourage you not to give up? For 38 years, this man lived with his limitations. He saw other people getting on with their lives and enjoying the freedoms that he felt were now an impossibility for him. Perhaps you are stuck. Perhaps you know someone who is stuck. Don't give up. And don't give up on them. Because Jesus has not given up on you or them. Into a hopeless context steps Jesus. Faith for this fellow was not a prerequisite for Jesus to act. To a man barren of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. To a man who didn't even know who Jesus was, who had no faith in Jesus. To this person, mercy still flows. And today, I know that Jesus responds to us with mercy, and it's still the same. Bethesda, house of mercy, is still a place that we can find today in Jesus. For some of us, we will experience God's healing in our life. Directly, indirectly, God does still heal today. We hear of people share how God has healed them, just like the lame man by the pool. I have no doubt that this healed man was not, only, was not the only one beside the pool that day. What about the others who I believe were there and not healed that day? Does, is God any less merciful to them? In Mark 8, 36 and 37, Jesus says, And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is anything worth more than your soul? The greatest way that God shows his mercy to us through Jesus' death and resurrection is through the salvation that Jesus offers us, paying for our sins, dying our death so that we can have a relationship with him. You see, the biggest area that we get stuck in in life is in sin. 
That's why Jesus came. And while we may prefer to be healed now, Jesus would prefer us to live in a relationship with him for all eternity, completely healed and whole forever. Jesus' mercy on us may not, may not take the form of a healing or a quick fix, but an eternal relationship where he chooses to be with you in every moment of every day, treasuring our tears, holding us in our pain. So if you are stuck and God chooses to heal you, celebrate it. But a greater reason for celebration is in knowing that Jesus died for us and chooses to stick with us through the good and the tough times. When we are stuck, we can behave like the lame man, but we can also experience Jesus' mercy in our lives. Finally, Jesus calls us to take responsibility for our behaviour. When Jesus caught up with the healed man in the temple, Jesus challenged him to take responsibility for his behaviour. Now that you are well, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now we need to be careful here that we don't get things all twisted up. Later in John chapter 9, Jesus challenges the view that a person's sickness is as a direct result of sin. But what I believe Jesus is saying here in John chapter 5 is that there are consequences for our actions, both in this life and in the next. And we need to take responsibility for our behaviour. You see, blaming others for our past, for our attitudes, the decisions that we make today is something that Jesus challenges here. It's sad to see the response of this man who experiences God's healing touch in his life but chooses it not to affect his heart. In direct contrast to Jesus' challenge to take responsibility for his actions, the man goes to the religious leaders to abdicate responsibility away for himself and blame Jesus instead. Today, Jesus challenges me that I have to take responsibility for my decisions, my attitudes, my actions in response to the decisions and attitudes and actions of others. In my family, I look most like my dad. Regularly, I would be told that I look just like your father. And as a teenager struggling to break free of some of those influences and to make my own identity, it was one of the most infuriating things that anyone could ever say to me. And as a teenager and as a young adult, there were, there were things that I saw in my life that were like my dad and I wanted to blame him for some of the decisions that I made. But God challenged me that I could not use this as an excuse. I had to take responsibility for my behaviour, my decisions. And that started on, uh, me on a journey where I can now celebrate in that some of the ways um, in my life I do take after my dad. And in others, I reflect my father-in-law and other male role, male role models that I've had in my life. But regardless, I cannot blame others or make excuses for my bad choices. 
I need to take responsibility for the decisions that I make. So whether I like to admit it or not, when I get stuck, over time it's all too easy for me to respond like this lame man. But as a recipient of God's mercy through Jesus, how will I respond to the challenge Jesus puts out there to stop making excuses and blaming others and to take some responsibility for my own actions. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who still initiates, that you don't just wait for others to cry out to you, calling for your help. But in your mercy, you still step into situations and you still move in people's lives in powerful, intangible ways. We thank you that you died on the cross for us, that you paid the debt that we owe for our sins. But help us as a recipient of your mercy to us to also be prepared to take responsibility, to do what we can do, to make the changes so that we can live this life well because of what you have done for us. Thank you for the beautiful partnership that you invite us into, both today and in the days ahead. Amen. So how might we respond today? What might God be saying? Well, there could be a whole range of things, but here's a couple of things that might help to prompt and to encourage you today. Where do you feel stuck at the moment? area in life, something that's going on for you, stuck in a bit of a rut. Write a prayer asking for Jesus' mercy to be applied to your life in a fresh way. Where have you been making excuses and God is calling you to take some responsibility? Ask uh, God to help you to take responsibility and to, to discover that path forward in living life well. There's going to be some music played, and as it is played, I encourage you to take out those response cards, and for those that are watching or uh, catching up later, then you can feel free to send us a message of your response today. God bless you.